1: Read Like a Writer is the book's podcast from Faber & Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate, three independent publishers bringing the voices and the book recommendations of their authors to your ears. It's hosted by me, Anna Fielding, and in each episode we'll hear about the books closest to these authors' hearts, their latest projects, and learn a bit about their local independent bookshop too. This week we're in Edinburgh, as a special treat to coincide with the book festival, and our guest right now in the studio is Karma Maria Machado. Carmen has written fiction, criticism and essays for many publications, including Granter and The New Yorker. Her first book, Her Body and Other Parties, is an inventive and absorbing collection of short stories, bending fairy tale, urban myth, horror and fantasy with a feminine and feminist approach. As I've said, we're in Edinburgh today, um, and Carmen, who lives in Philadelphia with her wife, has come all the way in to meet us. Uh, so thank you for that epic journey, Carmen. Of
0: course, thank you for having me. And how are you finding Edinburgh so far? It's beautiful. Um, I love. <clears throat> also, you can tell I'm a little sick, so pardon me. But um, yeah, I love the uh, the moodiness of the weather. I'm really I'm <laughs> really enjoying the cold and the. It was raining last night, and I was like, "Oh, it's so like dramatic and." I don't know I just really I've been enjoying it so
1: (laughs) I find that a very uh, (laughs) generous interpretation
0: (laughs) I like weather, weather I like weather with drama when I go to a place like LA I mean I love LA but like in LA the weather is so boring like it's just the same it's beautiful and perfect every day and I'm like this is very you know it's just it's routine it's not interesting um, well, <laughs> no one from the 70s. I, mean, like, I get like angry emails from people. I love L.A., I said that. <laughs> it has many charms. It has many <laughs> charms, but the weather is boring.
1: <laughs> um, so talking about her body and other parties, um, the first story in the collection, which is The Husband's Stitch, I think it really sets out your stall. Um, you have this wonderful, kind of lustful heroine, and she, and also by extension you, have... woven through so many stories that we already know. know, She's telling fairy tales to her son, first in a sort of cleaned up version and then as he gets older with a bit more gore. Um, And then there are a load of modern urban myths too, like the one about the serial killer with the hook waiting on top of the car. How do you find sort of building more stories with stories?
0: I mean... I've always been really drawn to narratives, what I call nested narratives. So like narratives that have stories within them. Um, And so, yeah, like when I was writing that story, actually the first draft of that story didn't have any of those other myths or legends. It was just the story of the girl with ribbon around her neck, growing into a woman and going through her marriage. And so the first draft I wrote it and I read it, I'm reading it to my wife and she, I mean, she absolutely loved it, but I was thinking to myself, like there's something missing. Like, this is not a complete version of this story. I need to sort of go back into it and think about it and then I was thinking about urban legends and myths and fairy tales, and the way that um stories with oral traditions get sort of passed around and retold, and the retellings and the way the stories shift and change like has a lot to like tells us a lot about ourselves um and and what we're interested in and who we are as people and as you know in various eras and things like that. So I was just really interested in in having that effect. Um, and so then, I, yeah, later when I went back, I just found myself using all these other stories as like little mirrors to sort of give to her to sort of reflect like the world that she's in and by extension, the world that that we're in. I think it works quite well as a device because, you know,
1: those stories, too. Mm-hmm. And so it pulls you in to sort of thinking about things from her perspective because, you know, those stories that she's telling. as Yeah, well. absolutely. Um, So taking forms and sort of twisting them and things is something you've done a couple more times throughout the collection as well. So, you know, with especially Henius, which is a sort of really surreal sense, a set of plot synopses for Law and Order SVU. Um, and then Inventory, which I loved, um, which I'm not going to talk about actually much, because I think <laughs> spoiling the twist at the end will ruin it for anyone who's listening, because I sort of sat up in the cafe I was reading with and went, oh! Um, <laughs> but it really does a nice play on that classic everyone I've ever slept with list, which I think so many people have made at some time. So going on that, there's a lot of writing about sex that you do as well, and um Real women have bodies is an interesting case in point. This shows the relationship between two girls um, at the same time as there's a a disease of some kind that's causing women to become incorporeal, insubstantial. Um, But the sex that they have is very grounded in realism, even though a lot of their surrounding is quite magical. So I was just wondering, how you... One, start writing about sex in such a realistic way without it sounding hammy. And secondly, how it kind of incorporates in a world where so much else is fantastical.
0: Yeah, well, the, how to make it write sex without sounding hammy is sort of like the million dollar question. And it honestly, I mean, for every sex scene that I write that I'm satisfied with, uh, there are lots that I discard. Um, and I can't, or I have to sort of strip the scene back a little bit because it's like too much. Um and I, it's it's funny, And I, I mean, when I started reading fiction, you know, I love a story with a sex scene as much as anyone else. <laughs> Maybe people won't admit it, but I, I, I'll I, admit it. Um, but oftentimes when I was reading <clears throat> what I guess you'd call sort of literary fiction or fiction where there was a lot of attention being paid to things like language and detail, so not, or language and character, um, stories not explicitly written, you know, it's not, not erotica, not written for the sexual content, but with a lot of sexual content. Um, I found myself often reading books by like straight men and I found it incredibly boring like I was like I'm just not interested after a while I get really bored hearing about women's bodies through the lens of straight men and it just sounded interesting to me and I want queer sex and I want sex where women's w- women regardless of their sexual orientation it's from their perspective You know, and there are certain writers who do do really beautiful jobs with that, like Lydia uh, Yuknovich, who's a writer who I really enjoy, Um, does these really just like sexy, weird books that just have like a lot of really sort of female bodied centric sex scenes that I really enjoy. Um, But yeah, I mean, the trick is just to, I mean, not the trick, but it makes makes it sound sort of cheesy, but like just sort of thinking about, um, oh, I I really need to like try to like push past the metaphors that you would think it's okay to use. Like people will ask me about like why I choose, but I can swear on this where I can say, yeah, yeah I thought so as a podcast, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, like, you know, so people, so people, sometimes they get very embarrassed and they'll say like, Oh, we, we want to use like really weird words. So like, it was like manhood. And I'm like, no, just say cock. <laughs> like, why is it so hard? You know, or like, you know, there's these like other, they'll be like, Oh, my, the down there. I'm like, no, just say cunt or say pussy or say whatever, like say the word. You know, and then like, we'll just push past it. Right. And like, and then it's just like a word that the character is using and it just, it works. Um, so I feel like people get very like tied up about that sort of thing. And I just sort of make my choices and stick with them. Um, and just sort of try to, And also the sex is always, you know, my, my objective is like, I want the scene to be sexy, but I also want it to be advancing some kind of plot. Like you know, I want, you know, it's part of the story. It's part of the character. It's part of the, the world that they're in. Um, so, yeah, so I, I just I mean, it's 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 always fun. Um, I, I enjoy writing them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. So
1: I mean, yeah, to carry on as well. It's one of the things that I've really liked about all of your work is that there's enough realism in there to anchor the magic realist bits and make right. them believable. It's almost right. like there's a groundingness of day to day world that allows that allows the sort of more fantastical elements to cling on.
0: Right. And, like, you know, whenever I'm writing anything, whether it's horror or fantasy or other, you know, other writers write, like, I mean, there's obviously millions of genres and variations on genres, but I'm always really interested in the way the body plays into any of those elements. So, like, even science fiction, even fantasy, like, where where is the body and how is the body interacting in that world, regardless of the circumstances around it? And sex and sexual desire is, like, a way that the body can serve as that anchor.
1: You've also gone in for, uh, in a very different physical realm, full on body horror in in one of the stories where um, the description of those pustles will stay (laughs) with me. I I once,
0: I once did a reading in New York and this man, I was like reading that scene uh, from the resident and this man just in the middle audience was just like, Oh no. Like he just like exclaimed like in the middle of the reading. It was like clearly just involuntary. Like he was just so like, upset (laughs) like what I was reading like he just like shouted it was like really intense um yeah I mean body horror in the for the same reasons actually that sort of visceral I mean it's in a way it's not that different than a sex scene right it's like very visceral again the body serves as an anchor um so yeah the uh, the other body horror is very interesting to me. (laughs) I was eating a smoked salmon sandwich while I was reading that. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope you're not put off a smoked salmon forever. That would be really tragic. It's going to be a couple of weeks.
1: (laughs) So moving on to your favorite bookshop, can you tell me which bookshop you've chosen?
0: So I have, it's hard to pick one, uh, but I'd say can I say, t- can I say two? Is that okay? Is that I'm allowed? Let's be
1: rebels. We'll break the rules. Okay, yeah.
0: sure, sure, sure. So probably my favorite ever um, is Prairie Lights in Iowa City, Iowa, which is just this amazing um, sh- store that does that has just incredible selection. Um, the sellers are very discerning. They have just you know the books that they they choose and the books that they they sell are. Um, Just really incredible. It's like just a really lovely selection, and they do like incredible events because Iowa City has a lot of writers coming through it because of the workshop that's there. So um, they just when I was living in Iowa City, you know that would just be these incredible events at Prairie Lights. Uh, and I really loved it. And then in Philadelphia where I live now, um, I, there's this really wonderful bookshop called Joseph Fox, um, which is in center city and it's this incredibly tiny, but again, this beautifully curated bookshop and they always have something, you know, even if they don't have, um, you know, they w- I mean, I'll go in and be like, do you have this title? But like, they'll be like, I don't, but here is this like perfect thing that you want and that you need. um, and we have picked it because we love it, and they'll give it to you. And you know they'll sell it to you, and it's always like amazing. So yeah, so Joseph Fox is my favorite in Philadelphia. We'll come back to Philadelphia in a second, but you were actually part of the
1: Iowa Writers' Workshop as yes, well, weren't Yes, yes, I was.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you find the experience? I loved it. Um, you know, people have a lot of feelings about MFA programs that I, I can't even get into it because it's I have so many thoughts and feelings about it. Um, but I loved Iowa. You know, I had had two years funded years that, to write. And that's really a gift that I will never have again. (laughs) Um, And I really sort of, um, I got a lot of work done. I like found my voice as a writer. Um, Not necessarily because I like went and people think of it as like, you know, oh, you go in and you are taught that. But I, it wasn't that I was taught that. It was that I went into this program where there were, like, lots of other brilliant writers, both as teachers and as students. Um, and people were just really thoughtful and smart and, you know, recommended books to me and, like, were like, you know, that story that you wrote last week, like, I, you have you read this person? Like, you should read this person. And I just found myself really, like, expanding. I mean, my work just really found its – I sort of found – yeah, I found my voice when I was there and um, got a lot of work done and – just it was just a really wonderful experience and I miss it all the time and it feels like it just happened yesterday but it happened like I graduated like 6 years ago which is pretty crazy but um yeah I loved it um and you're
1: now a writer in residence at the University of Pennsylvania yes uh moving it back to your current hometown which is Philadelphia mm-hmm. um so telling us about the bookshop there when you first walk in and you're going shopping, what's the first thing you see as you walk into John Fox and Philadelphia? Oh, Joseph Fox. Joseph Fox.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. <laughs> um, so right when you, so it's up some steps. Um, so you walk in and there's like these little, um, I don't know what they're called. Those like metal stands that spin around. Carousel. Carousel. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So they're like a bunch of little carousels that have a lot of the staff recommended books um, and it'll have a little card. They'll say, you know like, whose, whose recommendation it is. Um, and they do, like, a really beautiful display up in the front, and then to the left um, is where the booksellers are all sitting, and there's a couple of registers, and um, there's always somebody there, and they're always so lovely and chatty. Um, and then the bookstore kind of just goes back, so there's, like, a long bookshelf, and, like, a kind of little hallway, and then you sort of go to the back. Um, so all told, it's probably not much bigger than the studio we're in now, I think, when you probably, like, add together all the space, but... Um, they just like I said, it's just really beautifully curated. Like you know, whenever you go to a section, like you know, if I go to the nonfiction, I know I'm going to find something really, really interesting there, even if it's not necessarily what I was looking for. Um, and all the booksellers are just like the sweetest, loveliest people. And they they don't do events in the store because it's so small, but they they basically do all the bookselling for like the public library. So like if you go to an event at the public library, um, they they'll be there as the as the official bookseller. Um, so yeah, they're just fantastic.
1: So they're Philadelphia's top guys and we should all keep them in memory to visit them. You
0: should. I mean, there's a lot of really great bookstores in Philly, but, um, Joseph Fox is just my favorite. And yeah, if you're in center city, which is where a lot of people go, like it's, like I said, it's small, but if you're looking for like a new book that you just, you didn't know it existed, but you know, you tell them what you like, like they can, they can find you a really, really good title. So yeah, Joseph Fox. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds brilliant. Um,
1: we're going to talk about the books that you're about to recommend to people now as well. And, um, they're all ones that, in a very similar way to you about reimagining myths and fairy tales and legends and history, so kicking off with one of my favorites, Daisy Johnson, who 's currently on the book a long list, uh, with her reinterpretation of the Oedipus myth
0: yes, everything under, um, which I just got to read this summer um, it 's actually in the states it 's coming out with my publisher gray wolf um, so i was in- I was incredibly excited to uh to get to read it, and I just absolutely adored it. It was just really it's funny because actually as i started reading it i don't i don't i didn't realize it was the oedipus myth as i started reading it and so i was going like this i was like this weird there's i feel like there's some familiar (laughs) like elements in this book and then when i sort of got to like i don't want to give too much away but like when i got to the parts where i suddenly was realized what it was i was like oh shit (laughs) like this is amazing but yeah it's set in this um this like world of like riverboats in England, which I didn't really know much about this community or a bunch about it, but um, it was just completely addictive. I tore through it in one sitting. Um, I just absolutely loved it. Yeah, and I and of course then I was thinking a lot about you know because *Edibus* is such a strange story. When you first learn it, when you're like a kid, when you're like young, like a teenager, you're like, "That's a t- like." you know, destined to, like, sleep with your mother and kill your father. And it's so, like, dramatic and weird. And, you know, there's something very just, like, strange about it. And she does such a beautiful job, like, using that as a lens to sort of interrogate questions about identity. Um, and, you know, the setting, the setting was just really addictive. I just absolutely loved it. Um, so, yeah, I would absolutely recommend that title. Um, is it out? It's out here. It yeah. is out here. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I absolutely love, love Daisy Johnson, so... Yeah, because yeah. um,
1: her first collection was also short stories as well, Fenn, um, yeah. and I think very like you as well. She's also used that sort of fr- frame of magic realism to look at the stories mm-hmm. of women and girls in a different yeah. way. You know, she's addressed anorexia or domestic violence, but it's completely original yeah. because of the, the way she's done it. Yeah, she's incredibly smart. I really, really like her a lot. Um, So she kicked off with a book of short stories and then turned into a novel. Will we see a novel from you next? Uh,
0: (laughs) Well, I'm working on a memoir right now It's my next book that's actually coming out that I've sold. Um, I would like to write a novel. I don't know how I'm, I'm I'm trying to teach myself. It's very difficult. Um, And I admire all writers who go from the short story form into the novel form because the, it's such a different just way of thinking about your project. It's like, you know the short story. It's I feel like with a short story, it's very contained, and I can sort of think about it in my head, sort of hold it in my head in one shot. But with a novel, there's just pieces going everywhere. And honestly, when I read novels, and I'm even right now, I'm working on this memoir, and it's a full length book. Like even trying to keep all the pieces, and it's my own life. Like it's not even like if I'm making up. It's like things that happened in my life, but trying to like kind of keep all the pieces in my head is like really difficult. So honestly, I admire novel writers. Um, I want to write a novel. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that goes.
1: But I mean, there's enough discipline in short stories anyway. right. Uh- right. <laughs> Moving on to another collection of short stories. Uh, oh, this one's a classic. This is um, Angela Carter's *The
0: Bloody Chamber* oh, and other so stories. Good. Yes, um, I. So when I was in graduate school. I remember, and this is what I meant when I said that, like, I learned so much when I was there, a friend read a story of mine and said, have you ever read, or she was talking about Angela Carter, and I was like, oh, I've never read, the, I've never read any of her, and she was like, what, <laughs> you know, and that voice where they're like, I'm about to change your life, and she was like, she's amazing, but you should go read The Bloody Chamber, and I did, and it did change my life, I mean, it really, you know, Angela Carter Died too young. I I mean, she was incredibly, incredibly prolific even in her short life. But when I think about the Bloody Chamber and how that book, um, I think influenced just like an entire generation of writers who um, who have tackled sort of um, thinking about myth and fairy tale. Um, But the audacity of the Bloody Chamber is, you know, the way the way it sort of addresses violence and sex and the fact that she has like multiple tellings of retellings of the same story in one book which is like just it, when I first read it it was I was like wait is this another Beauty and the Beast story like right after this other one that's ridiculous that's amazing like that's just so and they're really different from each other and um one of them is incredibly sexy like it's just this like you know everything that she wrote and her language like her senses are just like it's just like decadent and ridiculous and every sentence i'm like how does she even get away with that um it's like being at a carnival permanently like it's just like you know every sentence is um incredible and like her puss in boots which is like so fun and weird i'm just like really yeah that novel or that novel that that collection really um just really and I, i think it really changed how i wrote like how i thought about sentences how i thought about how prose is so integral to the experience of reading. And now, you know, if I read a book that I otherwise would really love, but the prose is not up to snuff, which doesn't mean that it's always ornate. Like if it doesn't, if the prose is not being thought about in some meaningful way, I like can't read the book. Cause I'm just like, I need those sentences. I need them to be telling me something. And I feel like her sentences did so much work which is really wonderful.
1: She's a beautiful beautiful writer on, yeah. a, on a, a kind of micro structural yeah. level. Yeah. I also think there's something really satisfying um especially on your first reading of being seeing someone wrest control of a story that you've heard so many times right. before. You know, you have that different ending when the mother comes in at the end of the bloody chamber and just shoots the person who's about to
0: kill oh, the daughter. It's so good when she, the mother puts a bullet between uh between Bluebeard's eyes when the mother comes in and the horse is like rearing, it's such a good, the image, I mean that, and they're all amazing. That one is probably my favorite. I mean, the bloody chamber, the title story, you know, which is the Bluebeard retelling is just so stunning and so strange. And yeah, I mean, this is the trick of the fairy tale or any kind of like retelling of an existing tale, which is that, yeah, you're fighting against, it's like, you're telling a story that people generally have heard. Um, and so the question is like, how do you f- make that fresh? And how do you use it to examine things that maybe somebody has not, has not examined yet? Um, how do you sort of take the underlying assumptions of that story and, like, yeah, do something completely new with it? And people try it all the time. I think people, th- people think it's going to be easy. And then oftentimes I'll read, like, I'll read retellings. I mean, I won't say any names, but, like, I'll read them and I'll be like, eh, like, yeah, you know, okay, fine. Like, that is a retelling. But like, that's all I can really say about it. Um, But when you read a writer who does it well, where they're like really completely reconfiguring it um, in their mind and then in your mind, it's such a special experience. And I just, I love it. Yeah, there's one that actually
1: called mind for me, which is a completely different writer, writing for a completely different audience, which is uh, Roald Dahl's series of poems for children. Oh, and he has read Riding Hood do something very similar and come in and shoot the wolf. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, all at once, her eyelid flickers. She whips a pistol from her knickers. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I love
0: that you, you can just pull that out. You just
1: know. <laughs> it's uh, an integral part of a British childhood. Though. Oh, really? Okay. Oh,
0: interesting. <laughs> um, talk about confessions of the fox by Jordi rosenberg yes confessions of the fox was a book that i also received i don't know if it's is it, it's out here it must be out here I is it so, already yeah. out it just came out in the states um it blew uh, it blew the the my head off i mean i i was i was um i get a lot of like you know advanced copies of books um as a as i review you know and um I had gotten it in the mail and brought it with me to this residency. And I actually was going to, a, I was in New Mexico and I was going to some hot springs and I was like, well, I should bring an arc with me. Or I don't know if you call them that. Do you call them that arcs or advanced reader copies? Like, like galleys or whatever. Um, and I was like, I need a book that I, if I drop it in the hot springs, it's not a big deal. <laughs> Cause it's, you know, it's not a fin It's not a finished book. Um, and I just, d- I devoured it. So it's, yeah, it's this retelling of, of Mac the knife and three penny opera, this like English folk hero. Um, it's incredibly queer it's just like gender queer and queer story um it has this sort of other narrative happening so sort of the the frame of this of the novel is that this academic has discovered this telling of the story that tells us a lot of things about this character that we didn't know before and is sort of this like kind of satire of like academia Um, So there's sort of this funny, weird, very, like, intense, like, footnotes, and there's an introduction, and it's, like, really, really beautiful um, and really funny, and then this, like, incredibly fascinating and, like, romp of a story sort of happening in the main text, Um, and it just... It just knocked my socks off. Like, I I couldn't... I read it... I mean, again, it was like I... When I basically, when I was so pruny, I had to get out of the hot springs or I was going to fall to pieces. I was like, okay, I'm going to drive home and I'm going to keep reading this book because I just didn't want to f- stop reading it. Um, and it was so... It was just... It's so funny. It's so good. It's like nothing I've ever read before. It's like the queerest book I've read in years. It's just this absolute fucking delight. Like, I just... I could not get over how amazing it was. So, yeah, Confessions of the Fox... Uh, I just, I'm just insane. I don't know. I love this book so much. I just like want to just run screaming to people and just like thrusting it in their arms. <laughs> like, I'm like everybody should read this novel. It's so good. Um, and it's like, a hist- and also like, you know, his, I'm not as into historical novels. Traditionally, there are some that I like, but it's not a genre that I pick up a lot, but I was like, man, if every historical novel was like this, I would read all of them. <laughs> like, I, mean, I just want to read more books that are like this. So yeah, I just absolutely loved it. That I think is the most fulsome phrase I've ever heard. It? <laughs> well, also, and it's just like, you know, this is the pleasure of the retelling is that it allows you to reimagine. So, like in this case, like reimagining this character as a trans man and like using it as a lens to examine like the ways we conceive about conceive of gender and sexuality and have historically conceived of those things. Um and that's the magic, is like, you know, you can just be like, Oh, we actually knew this story wrong all along, and here's the real version. Um and that is Just brilliant and really, I don't know, it just makes me so happy and it's like such a fun way to, a fun and smart way to sort of approach that, that project of like reinterpreting an existing story.
1: We're going to move on to Emma Donoghue. um, I think who most listeners are going to know from *Room*, Mm -hmm. which was such a big book from her. But we're going to talk about something that uh, she released actually several years ago in 1997, which is *Kissing the Witch*. Um, It was published as a book for adults in the UK
0: and as a young adult book in the US. Yes, which I actually find incredibly odd. I don't know. I mean, like, I know this happens a lot with like books. Like, um, there was this book that came out years ago called *The Book Thief*. Um, which was huge in the States, but they released it as a young adult book in the States, but it was released, I don't know about here, but like in Australia and like New Zealand, they'd released it as an adult book. And Me too. I, oh yeah. So it, it was, but I remember like, and I, so it's interesting. Yeah. Why they, and I, when I realized they'd released it in the, the uh, kissing the witch as a young adult book, I was like, that's so interesting. Like not that they, couldn't I just was it was just an interesting choice anyway and Donahue
1: herself said it actually brought her a lot of new and younger fans, so she was quite pleased in oh the that's end. wonderful <laughs> yeah. no no
0: no that's that's great and I mean I can and that book is I mean I feel like and I could see that book sort of being like the bloody chamber for like older teens. Like I can sort of see that being a gateway drug into like the world of like fairy tale retellings. Um because yeah, the oh my God, kissing the witch is so lovely. So it's these nested narr- have you, yeah, so it's it's these nested narratives. Um so it starts off with like a Cinderella retelling and then she asks this woman who were you before you became the character you are in this story? And she's like, well, I'll tell you this tale. And then she tells a tale that's like a retelling of another fairy tale. And then just keeps, and then every character keeps saying like, who are you to this other person in the story? And it goes back and back and back and back and back. And they're just like telling all these really beautiful, also very queer, like retellings of a lot of traditional fairy tales, um, donkey skin and sleeping beauty and Rapunzel and, uh, beauty and the beast or, uh, Rose red and all those, all those stories. Um, and it has that like really beautiful sort of like, you know, there's a lot of ways to think about fairy tale. There's this really great essay by Kate Bernheimer that I love. She um she's a writer who writes, she rewrites fairy tales, and she also edits the Fairy Tale Review in the United States, which is like a really wonderful magazine. She's this really great essay where she talks about the form of the fairy tale and like what fairy tales and traditional fairy tales sort of have as a structure. And so it talks about like, you know, normalized magic and that sort of flatness of like character that is very common you know it's the witch the girl the boy the sparrow the the, the mother or whatever um and so while like a writer like angela carter is taking those myths and, or taking those fairy tales and like shaping them into this very like lush ornate like three-dimensional thing kissing the witch i feel like is also sort of engaging not quite as flat as a traditional telling but she sort of keeps that fairy tale tone which is incredibly interesting to me um because a lot of people when they retell it they're like uh oh, Like, I want to make all these characters, like, more three-dimensional. But she keeps that sort of, like, um, almost, like, abstraction, this quality of abstraction that I think is incredibly interesting. Um, And those stories are just so beautiful. And I love the way that they sort of nestle into each other. It's like a Russian doll, like a nesting doll. It's so beautiful.
1: It's interesting, actually, because one of the things that I found, and as you mentioned, she keeps very close to that sort of trad fairy tale tone. But she also credits the version of the fairy tale that she's taken it from. Yes. So she says, oh, this is from the Hans Anderson version or this is based on the yeah. Grimm version as opposed to them just being sort of floating in, in right. general and, culture. Right. right, 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 Um So I, I quite like that idea. It's also interesting, actually, that you mentioned donkey skin because that is one that does not get used very often. Because it's so, oh,
0: like, similarly to Oedipus, because it's got, like, this weird incest vibe to it, you know, and it's very creepy and sort of sexually violent and like, yeah, I actually am really interested in that fear. I mean, I I like to say I like it as a strong word, but I'm very interested in donkey skin and especially, I think, because it's, it's, it's not as common as like the little mermaid, you know? Because it's just way more, it's like harder to explain to children. So people are just like, uh. <laughs> ah. Yeah.
1: Briefly, for listeners who aren't familiar with uh, the fairy tale we're talking about, Donkey Skin um, is the story essentially of a father trying to force his daughter to marry him. And in various different ways, she dis- disguises herself in a piece of donkey skin as an ass and escapes. You can see why it doesn't get remade that often, or told yeah. to children.
0: Yeah, to, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's, it's but it, but it's like but I feel like there's something really, and the version that she does in this again, I don't want to give it too much away, but the version she does is just like really. Um, again, when I was reading it, I, I don't I don't think I I, I I was not as familiar with Donkey Skin the first time I read Kissing the Witch, and um, and when I finally uh, like sort of looked it up, I was like because I was like this is a disturbing story, and then I was like oh the source material is even more disturbing. <laughs> um, so yeah. I first came across it in a more academic context
1: in um, Marina Warner's From the Beast to the Blonde, um, mm. which was the first time I'd ever heard the story. I think mm-hmm. it had just not been part of my. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, also, and it sort of engages in that sort of idea of like the monstrous feminine, the fact that like to escape sexual violence, this thing that she doesn't want. She has to, like, sort of make herself into this, like... And, I mean, in the Emma Donoghue version, like, you know, she's... It's, like, it smells like shit, and it's, like, bloody and gross, and, like, she just becomes this sort of, like, animalistic sort of figure, this vagabond, and, like, it's just... It's so intense. It's just, like, a really intense version. I think... Or it's just an intense story, and she does a really amazing job of reimagining it.
1: It's interesting, because she's been quite uh, clever about using the... Tropes of the fairy tale in a metaphorical way. Mm-hmm. I read an interview. She said, well, "I was thinking about it. What if Thumbelina just felt small, rather than being a miniature yeah. woman?" Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was. A-
0: well, that's and that's sort of like you know, in the version of um, Snow White that she's telling. Yeah, it's like the the Snow White or not Snow. Sorry, not Snow White. Um, Sleeping Beauty. In the version she tells of Sleeping Beauty, like the sleep is like metaphorical. Like, the, the, the 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 sleep is just you know. I was this like, she's this very like privileged girl who just doesn't know what pain is. And that's the version of sleep that exists in that story. And yeah, I really admired that. And cause I, could you know, cause I, in those stories, it, it was easier to sort of tell as I was reading them, like what the source material was, like, you know, but when I got to, um, when I started to realize that some of the, some of these, like I was waiting for her to fall asleep. And then at some point I was like, oh, she is asleep already. Like that's sort of the whole point of the story, which I absolutely loved. So yeah, she does an amazing job with that. I love that book.
1: Um, and going on to our final one, uh, which is Helen Oyemi's Boy Snow Bird*, mm-hmm. which is a retelling of Snow White. Um, it's so rich in layers of secrets and ideas about identity. And the whole thing starts out with a girl called Boy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- this book is really interesting. And I think, you know, I was <clears throat> I was thinking about it. And sort of rereading it when I, for this interview, and I was I was thinking about it as a the, the first time I read it, and then rereading it. And the thing that's interesting about that book, so yeah, it's, it's basically this sort of it's a very loose adaptation of Snow White, reset in like the I think the fifties, and <clears throat> um, deals with sort of race and passing, and um, you know sort of these various like levels of privilege and thinking about yeah, just thinking about race in this way, um, and then the ending. And then I was sort of reading, and I was—I read the ending, and I was like, "Huh." And I I don't want to give too much away, but I I will say that the ending—I think it could be argued—is kind of transphobic. Um, But but, which I don't, which I think—I mean, I think it's just a thing to know sort of going into it. But I think it's really interesting because, you know, we sort of assume that, like, I feel like there's a sort of sense that people have this almost like. I don't want to say arrogance, but we're like, Oh, I'm going to interpret a fairy tale to make it like modern or to like think about it in a different way. But like also because like the original is flawed for X, Y, Z reasons or the original, like is very old fashioned in this way. But also sometimes like the reinterpretations tell us just as much about like our own assumptions and our own culture and our own time and place that we live in. Um, as much as as much as the original stories did, actually. Um, so, like, you know, reading it, I think, like, you know, I don't know if this novel could have gotten. I mean, how. I don't actually know how old. Do you know when it actually came out the first. I only read it a few years ago for the first time, but. It's
1: relatively recent. I think it's a three or four years.
0: Okay, okay, yeah. Um, I feel like the conversation about, like, gender has, like, changed fairly recently. And I think. I, I wonder if, like, th- the exact plot of this book would be the ending would have been the same if it was published now or like in the future. But yeah, but it's also like, you know, her style, I, I love Helen Yemi and her style is so like bizarre, and sort of hallucinatory and dreamy. Um and her sentences are so beautiful and weird and like she's just like a really interesting and she also, you know, she has other, a lot of other like interpretations of, you know, she has like a um Mr. Fox, which is like a bluebeard, you know, sort of that, th- that um like a bluebeard retelling or a sort of play on Bluebeard it's like Bluebeard and Rayna Dean sort of jammed yeah, together yeah yeah right? yeah it's so so. she's obviously very interested like that's something that she's like she's very interested in like myth and the ways in which those things can sort of be put through her very like strain sort of like I don't want to say Lynchian exactly, but like the sort of hallucinatory, like dreamy lens that is like her sort of identity as a, as a writer. Um, Yeah, I absolutely love, I just, I just love her. And so that book is really interesting. And I think um, despite that ending, which I, I sort of have a lot of thoughts about, but like, I really just, yeah, that book is so fascinating to me and I just love the way that she uses um, Snow White of all, of all stories. And you know, it's funny because like when you, when you read Snow White, that sort of image of like skin as white as snow, you know, it, it, which is like part of that, you know, sort of incantatory quality, you know, lips as red as blood, hair as black as, I think it's ebony on the windowsill, and then skin as white as snow. And like, you know, uh, taking that and like unpacking it into this like huge, weird, beautiful book. Um, it's just quite a feat and I think is incredibly interesting. So, yeah, and it reflects like a really interesting ways of thinking about things like race. And then also has these sort of like problematic things about gender and like, and like, um, gender identity. And yeah, I don't know, but it's a really interesting book. And I, I, I really, I know she's another book coming out, I think next year and I'm really excited about it. So And she talks about identity in so many ways
1: in blue, so Bird as well, yeah, I mean, even yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of a person's personality, because mm-hmm. boy goes from being this very kind of traditional lost waif that you have quite a lot of sympathy for, um, abandoned in the gutter, um, to then when she kind of gets a bit more status and a bit more privilege herself and is there presented with another younger woman. Um she sort of goes from being this sympathetic figure
0: into more of kind of almost like Snow the White ste- stepmother. The stepmother, right. She yeah becomes the yeah, yeah. stepmother. Yeah. And I, I feel like similarly, I feel like she's doing a similar thing with that as um Emma donahue does, which, which is this like the way that emma donahue reimagines this sort of figure of the stepmother a couple of times in various stories is really interesting. And I mean it's not a coincidence that um with the exception of Confessions of the Fox, like all these books are by women, and I think, um, and, and um, I think there's something really interesting about, yeah, like the way, and like even the image of the stepmother, and like what does that mean, and like why is this such a, why is this such a, like a, a a trope in fairy tales, and and how does what does it say about what we think about like women and mothers, and what does it mean to be a mother, yeah, it's just it's just really really interesting to me and yes yeah, so i feel like she's doing doing something similar and playing with that idea of like what it means to be like a quote-unquote like wicked stepmother um an evil queen you know like that that sort of idea in both of those books is really getting turned around in interesting ways thank you very much for that um, carmen
1: that's all we've got time for sadly the rest of the book festival swells around <laughs> know, <right>? us and <laughs> i think we've all got uh- places to be but um thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me even with your plane cold um... <laughs> well thank you for having me read like a writer was brought to you by faber and faber serpent's tale and Gate books and was presented by me anna fielding karma maria Machado's book her body and other parties is published by serpent's tale and it's out right now get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash read like a writer. And we'd love to hear what you think too. So do feel free to tweet us at read like a pod. Thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter.